Welcome to the Fresh Fiction Podcast. My name is Gwen Reyes. And I'm Danielle Dresser. This is a podcast where we talk about what we're reading, watching, and listening to. We also dig into publishing industry news and stories you may have missed. Today, we're talking about fashion, and we also have an awesome interview with Lauren Willig. Gwen and I are also going to update each other on our goals from last episode and talk about what's bringing us comfort this week. Awesome. Yay. I'm so excited, Danielle. We're back in fashion. I know. So we (laughs) wanted to talk a little bit about fashion in these trying times (laughs) Um, and kind of what we've been doing with working from home. I think both, we both have had, or like, you know, in the before times, you know, we were both, I wouldn't say fashionistas, but we were like, we would put together outfits, you know, we cared about, we cared about how we looked. Yes, exactly. So I thought it would be fun to talk about like working from home and what that has meant to our wardrobes. And also maybe a little bit about any kind of work from home rules we have for ourselves that have been helpful. Um, So I feel like an outlier because I make myself put on real clothes every day, Um, (laughs) which has like, when I say, well, yeah, I'm wearing jeans or whatever. And people are like, why? (laughs) Yeah. Why? Jeans are very restrictive. (laughs) Exactly. So, but yeah, I, I find putting on real clothes is something that makes me feel more like a real person mm-hmm. um, and not going through this kind of day-to-day, like same thing every single day situation. And it's actually something that I, I kind of took from when, so when I was pregnant with my daughter almost seven years ago, believe it or not, um, I was on bed rest for over half my pregnancy. I, at 21 weeks, I went on not complete. I wasn't like in the hospital. I was at home, but Mm -hmm. I I had to stay off my feet. And there are tons and tons of amazing, um, like message boards and forums that, you know, mothers who are experiencing bed rest can join. And one of the, excuse me, one of the most consistent words of or pieces of advice I got was even if you wake up and you change into different pajamas, you still, you change into something every day. You give yourself a routine. So you put on your mascara or you at least comb your hair. Or if, you know, my thing was like, I had a schedule of what I was going to watch. Every oh. day. So it was mm-hmm. like, I knew at 10 o'clock, I was going to watch Cupcake Wars. And then I was going to turn to Lifetime and watch Grey's Anatomy, which I've talked about. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, so I kind of took that and did the same thing where I was like, okay, if this was not during a worldwide pandemic, what would I be doing? Even though, cause I, I work from home already. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I wear real, I wear real clothes, if you will. So I thought I would talk a little bit about like some of my favorites. Cause I have, I've, I have increased my comfortable clothing, but it's still real clothing. So one of my favorite sweatshirts, I'm really into sweatshirts. I have a lot of sweatshirts. I love sweatshirts right now. That's all I want to buy. Um, but one of my new favorites is actually an Amazon brand called daily ritual. It's one of their clothing brands. Mm -hmm. They have this V-neck sweatshirt that is just, it's really cozy. I believe it's hundred percent cotton. Um, we will link to this in show notes. But yeah, it's one of my favorites. My favorite go-to jeans that are not terribly restrictive are the Old Navy Rockstars, that whole Mm -hmm. line. They're all, they're really comfortable. And then I recently bought, I finally splurged, or at least it's a splurge for me. And I got a pair of Madewell jeans, just like simple, high-waisted, 
skinny jeans because you know yeah. I'm a millennial. I'm gonna wear my skinny. I'm jeans. gonna wear my skinny jeans. Nobody understands the turmoil exactly. that was a flared, like a giant flared pant. No, I'm not ready for that to come back into fashion. No, um, no, never. But yeah, so that's so I have those. I really like those. And then for t-shirts, I have two. I have kind of a bargain buy and then a more expensive buy. One is the Target Universal Thread. Their V-neck shirts. I think I have almost every color. Why? I don't know. I just do. And then my kind of a splurge is a brand similar, but a different brand called Universal Standard. And it's their T-Rex T. And they are just these wonderful, like they're, they're really, they're thick, like they're sturdy fabric, but Mm -hmm. they're not like, I don't feel like I'm sweating in them or anything like that. They're like a real nice real just basic, really nice shirt. Then when I do wear leggings, I have this pretty cheap pair that I got off of Amazon as well. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I think the brand is, it's like Kupo, Koopa, and <laughs> I don't know, but they're high-waisted leggings and they have like the side pockets, which is my new requirement for all of my leggings. I, I have like a, how I want pockets and dresses and skirts. Now my leggings have to have pockets. Um, so yeah, so those are kind of my working from home fashion rules. Gwen, what about you? Um, I love rules and I think that they're very important. Um, and I have also been working at home for a very long time and have never been very good about wearing consistent real clothing unless I have to. Um, so, but unlike today, I am wearing a full outfit of bra and, and, and jeans and a shirt and a cardigan. Um, Mm. but normally I will wear, um, what I have now just decided is athleisure. Um, Mm. it's a pair, it's the pajamas that I don't wear to sleep. I do only just wear them at home and I wear them for a day and then I change them out. And I, so I do agree with the rule of changing every single day. That's very important. Um, I have been thinking about this though, that sound that we're, we're not, nothing is changing, but we are living more of a zoom and video life. So it does really matter about what we look like more than I feel like it did previously. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm thinking about getting more invested in some like really nice cashmere sweaters. (laughs) I was like, Ooh, that'll be nice to wear. So Um, yeah, I normally, I do have one thing that I am consistent about is I have to have house slippers. I have Mm -hmm. to put on real shoes, some sort of like either a slipper or, um, I'll wear like a sneaker that's just for the house because I want that. I do. I don't know why. Like, I feel like maybe I need to run somewhere quickly, but I need to have like a real shoe on my foot. I agree. We have most of our floor. We have only we only have carpet in our on a, like we have a, we live in a split level so on like our lower level mm-hmm. that's where you have carpet but so everywhere else is hardwood and I mean we have rugs and stuff but yeah I have I have a, multiple pairs of slippers um do you have a go-to pair that you like you love like a brand you can recommend I really like Vionic mm-hmm. um they, I love their I had already I think you and I've already talked about their shoes before previously maybe mm-hmm. but um I love their dress shoes and then I discovered that they made a slipper and they are wonderful. They are a little pricier because you, yeah. but you wear them, they're like real shoes. So you just mm-hmm. wear them as much as you want and then maybe get new ones. But I feel like the investment's worth it. Your feet are very important. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other rules that you kind of abide by that have helped you throughout, like kind of working, working from home specifically? Yeah. Um, I definitely think having to take a shower every single day is really important. Having that sort of real 
connection to this sounds so hippie ish, having a connection to water that wakes you up and gets you going is so helpful because it makes you just feel less disgusting. Have you heard um, of this trend with people, people who say that like cold plunging, so either taking like like a two or three minute really cold or like the end of your shower. Yeah, I'll do like a cold rinse at the end of my shower. Do you feel like it has any benefits? Like people say it's supposed to help you sleep better and like clear your skin. Like, do you think it's really helpful? The only time I ever see it being helpful is like with my hair. Cause I'll do it specifically for like a cold rinse for my hair because it, it, I have such curly hair. It'll just get really like dry and horrible. And I know like, I love a hot shower. So I know that my face is a lot drier because of that. And my skin's a lot drier. So I have to try to, the, the cold does kind of help to put a little bit of moisture back in, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't, I haven't tried it for sleeping or anything, but mm-hmm. I don't like to be cold typically. So it's right. real fast. Same, same. No, I, I wouldn't, I like when I heard of this, I was like, I would never, I would yeah, never do I would this. never. <laughs> but I do also agree going back to rules for working mm-hmm. from home. It's like, you have to have a schedule mm-hmm. and that's something that I had to learn over a long time. And it changes too. And like being okay with the fact that your schedule might change. Like you may have a routine for a month and then something happens or you're on a deadline. You're like, I can't sit and watch CBS this morning, which is like my comfort. And one of the things that uh, I really enjoy about the beginning of my day is I have a cup of coffee and I hang out with Gail and Tony and Tony and see what's going on for the day. And Vlad shows up. Um, but then there's like times where like the last two, like last week we couldn't do it. Cause in Texas, we, uh, this is in the future, but, um, when we were recording this, we just came out of a horrible sto- snowstorm, And so I didn't have TV for a week. Uh, which I thought it, at the end of that, I might not need TV anymore, but I, this, yeah, I came back from it on Friday and was like, no, 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 TV is important. We need TV. <laughs> um, and then like, so because of that, and like this week's just been so busy, don't always have the time for that routine. So it's being able to be flexible with your routine too, is really helpful. I agree. I think you have to, you have to be that way. It's, it's interesting because I think I've mentioned this, my daughter is doing remote learning mm-hmm. and even when her teacher will like tell them, they'll be like, okay, tomorrow we're doing things different. Cause they, you know, they've been doing like assessments and tests and things. And so, you know, but they, they, they get so set in their routine. And then when you change it, it's like, what do we do? We don't yeah. know how to operate. And then I, but I was like, you know what? I, I relate to that because whenever I do to change my routine, it really, it, you know, kind of throws a curve. And then you think too, I think what's really funny is you think, oh, a month ago I was doing something completely different. And, yeah. but I can't imagine going back to that. So I have two rules that I think are a little, like they, they, I have to be flexible with them. But one thing that I do do is I make sure after spending like a day sitting at my dining room table working while my daughter is, you know, doing school and mm-hmm. just kind of being around, um, is I go up into my office and I, I just have alone time and it doesn't matter. I, most of the time I do go and I write or I read or get work done or whatever that I really need to concentrate on. But even if I just come upstairs and like like yesterday I came upstairs and I watched an episode of Riverdale by myself. (laughs) What a treat. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was a real treat. Um, There's that. And then the other thing that I've been trying to do that has made a difference is I kind of give myself the agency to just sit on my phone for like half an hour, maybe an hour and just 
go on Twitter and just yes. keep scrolling or go on Instagram and just, it doesn't matter. So I don't feel guilty and I'm not doing it all day. I like give myself that time. It's like kind of, it's usually at the end of the day. Um, and I just, and I'm just like, you know what? You're just, you're going to scroll. You're going to double tap on everyone's pictures. You're going to mm-hmm. like all the tweets and retweet and do all of that. And that has really helped me kind of get out of, I think, taking that time during the day to, to get caught up in doom scrolling, you know, yeah. and cause then you just, you end up wasting a ton of time. So really I like, I think training myself and saying, okay, you can doom scroll for a while, but you can only do it during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, I think we both work in, in the entertainment industry, if you will. And so we have to be on social media. We have to be on social media. We have to know what's going on. Exactly. And so I think, you know, when I do do that for specifically for work, I'm like, okay, I think my goal here is I need to be mindful. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and so when I am on Instagram, like during the day, it's not just, oh, I like that. That's cute or whatever. I kind of, if I like something, if I'm like, oh, I like this, maybe I should actually leave a comment or, you know, not just retweeting, but quote tweeting and explaining why this was interesting to me or something like that. Taking that effort. Um, I'm getting better at that. So I'm trying to be more mindful in my social media use. Yeah. Now that I've been back in my office, I'm like, after a, a hard day of doing tours or, or talking to people, it's like, it's okay to just sit at your desk mm-hmm. for an hour and read an article if you want to, or like my whole thing. I love um, reading my doom, not doom scrolling, but my favorite, like uh, escapism right now is reading different Reddit threads yeah. for Bravo shows that I watch. <laughs> <laughs> and so, excuse me. So I'll like get deep into a reddit forum about below deck and i'm like i don't have to feel bad about that right now exactly i think taking the guilt away Mm -hmm. is really helpful and i think that can be applied to a number of things i think because people are so we're so connected to our phones now or our laptops or ipads or whatever we're using you know you i think you have to accommodate it in a way but you also don't want it to become like an obsession where you're oh, not right. 100%. And for a while there, I feel like, well, and also the news cycle was so relentless for a while. <laughs> last Yeah. It was just so hard to get last. away from it. And it was like, we were addicted yeah. to it ourselves. And now exactly. it's like, oh, we can breathe a little yeah. bit. Those are good. Hopefully everyone gets something out of that. I hope. Yeah. You guys should tell us what your rules are. If you have rules or fashion things that uh, keep you sane while you're working from home, we'd love to hear about it. Definitely. Awesome. Okay. So coming up next is our chat. This was such a fun chat. It was so much fun. um, Yeah. She's a dream. The New York times and USA today, bestselling author, Lauren Willig, whose new book band of sisters is out right now. Lauren Willig is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of the Carnation series and several standalone books of historical fiction, including The Ashford Affair, The Summer, The Other Daughter, and The Forgotten Room, which she co-wrote with Karen White and Beatrice Williams. Her books have been translated into over a dozen languages, awarded the Rita Bestsellers Best and Golden Leaf Awards, and she was chosen for the American Library Association's annual list of the best genre fiction. After graduating from Yale University, she embarked on a PhD in English history at Harvard before leaving academia to acquire a JD at Harvard Law while authoring her Pink Carnation series of Napoleonic set novels. 
She currently lives in New York City, where she now writes full-time. Welcome to the Fresh Fiction Podcast, Lauren. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so delighted to be here. We're thrilled to have you. Well, let's just dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you've been holding up during the uh, last two thousand, the last year, really? I think that the main word for that is coffee. So um, <laughs> I live in New York City. I'm a native New Yorker, and I have at the when lockdown hit in March, my kids were two and six, and so the first thing I did was I ordered an espresso machine, and then I you know, went about trying to you know acquire food for the kids and you know stuff like that. But you know the important thing was getting an espresso machine and lots of pods, which as my husband likes to point out is probably the only reason I didn't murder anyone back during the three months when we were really on lockdown, lockdown last spring. Um, at the time, I was on deadline for my latest book, Band of Sisters, and it was a really funny experience and in some ways a very poignant experience writing that book about these wonderful Smith College grads who were struggling with um, trying to repair the ravages of war in the psalm while world, world, the warfare of World War I raged nine miles from their headquarters. At the same time that I was sitting here locked in my room with my computer for the two hours a day of writing time my husband was able to give me um, with the sirens sounding constantly outside my window as ambulances rushed more and more people to the hospital with COVID complications. And it felt really strangely parallel, these two crises going on. And, you know, in addition to the coffee, I found writing about the Smithies very soothing because these were women who had lived through incredible times and great hardship. In fact, they had put themselves into this hardship deliberately. They went over there from their peaceful upper middle-class American homes to go help people and put themselves into this mud pit in the Psalm where you know, the German army might attack them at any moment. But yeah. they lived through this and they came out the other end and they came out better for it. And that's what, as I sat there, you know, not knowing how this pandemic was gonna go or how it was gonna end and whether we would ever be able to leave the apartment again. You know, my two-year-old kept dragging me to the window and pointing down the block to where the playground was to be mm-hmm. like, you know, mommy, it's over there in case you forgot, we can go there. I'm like, no, we can't because there's a bad sickness. He's like, when will the bad sickness be over? I was like, I don't know. But, you know, and that really resonated with me when I was writing about the Smithies who are dealing with these poor French villagers who are, you know, who are looking to them for answers and they don't have answers. Oh. They have to think of something to tell these people to reassure them and help them. And so that writing this book actually really helped me through the craziness of the pandemic. Of course, now that we're a year on and the pandemic is still not over, I am again. <laughs> But I still find hope and inspiration in the Smithies. Having to find a whole new um, place to lose yourself so that you don't have to think about one more year of being inside again. Yeah, I mean, I'm very glad we did not know at the beginning. It reminds me, actually, I think it is very parallel to World War One, when when the war started, people thought, okay, a few quick battles and this will all be over, like every other European war that had happened in the early 20th century. And so when the trenches were dug and this thing just stretched on and on and on, people just couldn't, they couldn't grasp that in their heads. I think sort of the same way. I mean, I remember when we, when we locked the door for that first lockdown, I got in two weeks worth of supplies and my Nespresso. And (laughs) it was like, okay, this will, and my husband, you know, got a desk to work from home. It was sort of like, is it crazy buying an extra desk? I mean, this is only going to be a couple of weeks. And, you know, we really thought two weeks and this would be over. And then it was, I remember thinking, because we, we locked down personally on March 11th. 
And I, and my, my daughter's school very abruptly ended. They had thought they would be able to eke out an extra day, but then there were cases in the school. And so she was sent home with a packet of work from home materials. And that was it. We were in lockdown. And I remember thinking, oh my God, if this thing lasts till May, I don't know how we're going to stand it. (laughs) And then May came and went and it was still going. So it's just... You know, again, you know, I, and I think about these people living through World War One, saying, okay, the war will be over by Christmas, and then Christmas comes, and it just keeps stretching on and on and on. Right. I guess, you know, maybe that's how we, we can only deal with these things in chunks. I just want to say, I completely relate. I have a six-year-old daughter, and one of the very first um, pandemic splurges we bought was a, it was a Keurig, the K Cafe, where it, like, mm-hmm. steams the milk for you, because... I definitely needed lots and lots of caffeine <laughs> to survive being in close quarters with everyone. So I, I completely appreciate that you also did the same. <laughs> oh yeah. It's about sort of the caffeine and trying to recreate the atmosphere of the before times, mm-hmm. you know, because I used to do all my writing at Starbucks and that was what created that gap between my home life and my work life for me as a person who technically works from home was mm-hmm. that was when my writing t- where was my writing time. I would take yeah. my little writing laptop that I used only for writing and go to Starbucks and sit there at my favorite table with my caramel macchiato or whatever the drink of the book was. And that, you know, that would put me into that world. And so it was very disorienting when suddenly that was no longer available to me. Yeah. And I was doing my writing work at the computer I usually only use for sending emails and shopping for cute dresses at Ann Taylor Loft. Yeah. <laughs> I love whenever there's a big group of people kind of all together forced in the close quarters, everyone is is actually working towards the same goal, but the conditions are just so unknown. And they, you know, I would, I just remember reading the beginning when they're, they're on the boat and they're like sailing and they just, it's like, they know they're going into something, but they don't quite exactly know what it is. Um, and tensions just are running so high. It's like, I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about how you handle such a large cast of characters and what do you do to make sure they're all so distinct, but they just don't completely overrun the plot? Well, that was definitely a challenge because mm-hmm. there were 18 members of the real Smith College Relief Unit, this group of Smith alumni who went off to bring humanitarian aid to French soldiers right behind the front lines. And I knew there was no way I was going to be able to keep 18 personalities distinct. Mm-hmm. So I focus as much as possible on my two main characters, my two heroines, one a scholarship girl from Brooklyn who is sort of a pure, a tree grows in Brooklyn, sort of the daughter of an Irish immigrant and a Czech immigrant who mm-hmm. lives in libraries and wins a scholarship to Smith, but really feels out of place there in an era where most of the other girls are very upper middle class and Protestant. I mean, this was a time where there was real anti-Catholic sentiment in America. Just so to be, as my heroine puts it herself, Irish Catholic and poor was a huge detriment. And her college roommate, who is the daughter of a socialite suffragette descended from impeccable Knickerbocker and Mayflower lineage, but who is desperately insecure about her own height and plainness. And you know the fact that she's not very academic or organized. And so the, these two women who are so close, but yet each has something the other feels they lack. And so they have endless capacity to misunderstand and hurt each other as so often happens in really close female friendships. They Mm -hmm. were the ones I really tried to focus on. They're sort of the anchors of this book. But as you put out, there is a large ensemble cast and (laughs) I could not resist, you know, creating all these side characters. 
And this was partially because, so when I was writing this book, I had a treasure trove of material I was drawing on. I mean, usually with my books, I desperately search for primary sources. Mm -hmm. In this case, the oh my God, I was drowning in primary sources. It was amazing <laughs> because all of the members of the real Smith College Relief Unit wrote home copious letters from the Psalm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of these letters, sometimes when they would say things that they didn't want the censors to see, they would mm -hmm. go and find someone who was going back to the States and they would give it to them. So it could be smuggled in without being bits of it being blanked out. You know, so they Brilliant. could they weren't supposed to say. Uh -huh. um, and these letters, they were, a lot of them are very private. They're very personal. And it's also the, the amazingness of having the same incident recounted to you by five or six different people at a time. So you get everyone's different perspectives. Yeah. And there were a few of these women whose personalities really conveyed themselves to me through those letters. Mm -hmm. And so even though I replaced the real women of the Smith unit with my own fictional women, a bunch of my side characters in this ensemble cast are really closely drawn from the way some of these real women appeared to me through their letters, which helped me to keep them distinct. And it also helped because, you know, part of the impetus for this book is I am fascinated by the way, at, just as you were saying, when you get a large group of people together, most of whom do not know each other, and they're mm -hmm. engaged in this high pressure work in these horrible conditions, what's going to happen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, the, there was the memoir that first piqued my interest in it. And the memoir is very sanitized. There's no mention of infighting or anything like that, but there was one line that totally caught my attention where mm -hmm. she made some throwaway comment about how the only limitations to their high endeavor were the limitations set by their own abilities and uh, their own abilities, fellowship and personalities. As right. like, oh my God, there was infighting, something happened there. <laughs> and, and so, and then, you know, once I dug into the letters, the sort of the factions and battle lines began to emerge and you really got a sense of how these different personalities impacted their work yeah. and drove, you know, what was happening there and what they were doing. And you know, some of them, I really, I fell in love with. There's one woman who wrote home about trying, begging for books for these mm -hmm. French children who hadn't seen a book in three years. Mm -hmm. And she was just really going the rounds of publishers in Paris asking for discards and begging alums in the US to send money so they could buy more books for these kids. And she became a character who becomes the, she turned into um, in the, my book, a character named Nell, who's the unit's librarian. Mm -hmm. And there's another woman who most of their letters home are really relentlessly perky. I mean, if any of you have ever read Rilla of <laughs> Ingleside, the last Anne of Green Gables book, I mean, this is, these letters are Rilla. It's the same time period. It's the same tone. It's this mixture of incredible snark and mm -hmm. earnestness. And they're oh, wow. very self-mocking. They're very serious about their work, but they mock themselves relentlessly. But there's this very much like, you know, and then there are bombs falling again. Ha ha ha. Funny story where they're making light of their own troubles all the time right. and trying to turn everything into silliness. But there was one woman who wrote home who really doesn't do that. And she's writing to her best friend. And these letters, they're heartbreaking because she talks about how scary it is when the shells are falling and how she has this little silver flask of sherry that she'll sip from when no one is looking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, about her doubts about what they're doing there, whether they can really yeah. make a difference. And about the fact that a lot of the women come in pairs with a friend, but mm -hmm. she wound up coming by herself and about sort of how lonely she is, but how everyone sort of, they're living in these tiny little army barracks on the grounds of a ruined chateau, but how there's no privacy. There's no place to go and have a cry without people mm -hmm. seeing you. And so those letters, they really resonated with me. And that woman's letters developed into 
another character in the book because I loved that vulnerability and the fact that, you know, she was willing to show another side of what they were doing there. Cause I'm sure some of these other women felt that too, but yeah. they were a generation that really prizes that stiff upper lip and you have to make the best of things and turn it into a joke at your own expense. So the fact that she was willing to talk about, well, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so are friends with each other. And I think so on is kind of nice, but you know, no one really has much time for me. We, that really resonated. Sounds like the research was such a fun part and having to go from like the research to actually writing it. But what was like something that you found that you couldn't keep in the book? Oh my God, there was so much stuff that I found (laughs) that I couldn't keep in the book because they had so many adventures and mishaps that I just was not able to shoehorn it all in. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of it involved livestock. I know that sounds silly, (laughs) but they had all of these misadventures with livestock because you've got these upper middle-class urban women who are going into an agricultural rural area that's been destroyed and depleted. And part of their job is to rebuild the agricultural base. And their founder had thought of that. She, one of the, mem- one of the members of the group was an agriculturalist as they call mm-hmm. her. But what they hadn't reckoned with was that their agriculturalist who was also a Smith grad who worked at the Department of Agriculture in DC couldn't leave her job right away. Yeah. And so she didn't make it over until months after the rest of them did but the work needed to be done anyway. So these poor Smithies are there trying to order chickens and mm-hmm. cows and all that. And they accidentally order 74 roosters instead of 74 chickens because most of them have never met a chicken before and so there were all of these mishaps with animals and I just you know after a while the animal gags you can't get too many of them in but there were some great bits about like in real life um they were having people over to tea and a delivery of pigs arrives and this nice British major sorts out their pigs for them (laughs) it's okay I'll deal with your pigs so I couldn't get that in I really wanted to because um this British and the British major wound, it, wound up getting incorporated into another character, but I really wanted to use him because mm-hmm. he just sort of basically, so part of what amused me so much while I was reading these letters and writing this book is people keep wandering in. Like they're mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere in the song, but they are the only English speaking women for miles. And when word gets out that they're there, every Canadian, American and British army officer and enlisted man in the region finds an excuse to stop by. And some of the the excuses, like they write home that the excuses are really stupid. So these people are just constantly wandering in. And there's this one British major who just keeps wandering in, but he does all this useful stuff for them. Like he Mm -hmm. sends um, Tommy's, the British rank and file to go Mm -hmm. lay duck walk for them. And when they're having trouble with the pigs, he deals with their pigs. So I really wanted to get that in. I just, I could not shoehorn that in. Towards the end of their stay there, and this is not a spoiler since this is all public record, the Germans break through the lines Mm -hmm. and they wind up um, being forced to retreat. Although, you know, before they retreat, I love these women so much, they ignore a direct order from the British army. And instead of running away from the Germans, they drive towards the Germans because they want to make sure they can evacuate all their villages. So they drive towards the battle so they can pick people up. And originally, like the Brits are like, whoa, whoa, you're supposed to be going the other way. But after a while, they give up and they're like, okay, if you're doing this, we've got some people who are stranded over here. Could you rescue people from this village? Um, But that that retreat where they're ferrying people and they wind up staying up pop-up canteens and doing all these other things. That's so cool. The story of the retreat so much happens. Like one of the women winds up directing traffic for the British army. Cause they're like, we don't have enough people. Everything is getting muddled. Would you mind directing traffic for us? And she's like, sure, no problem. <laughs> and so she directs traffic for the great retreat, but there was so much, you know, there were 
The crazy thing is there were only a handful of unit members left at their headquarters when the invasion happened, but they all wind up pitching in in different ways. And this, there were so many stories from that retreat um, and some of them really random, like one of the women winds up being invited by a bunch of French gunners to come see their artillery. And she's like, sure, I'll take an hour off and go see your guns. And, you know, <laughs> the stories like that, I wasn't able to get in there. We should like, whoa, nice guns there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, it sort of detracted from the rest of the story. So I had to take that bit out. How do you think the past informs or even maybe gives some insight into our present day and or the future? Okay, what I what really struck me, and I think this is gonna sound a little bit bleak is that so no one, I had never heard of the Smith College Relief Unit. No one I knew had ever heard of the Smith College Relief Unit. A couple of Smithies actually vaguely remembered hearing about the Smith College Relief Unit, but a lot of Smithies hadn't. And so these women have really been entirely forgotten. There's very little written about them. Um, you know, they do get a couple of lines and a couple of books about Americans in World War One, mm-hmm. but for the most, there's there's a monograph being written about them right now by a Smith professor, but it doesn't exist yet. There are basically, there are almost no secondary sources about them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I discovered while I was working on this was that they were a media sensation in their own time. And that there were all these articles on them and people like reporters would trek out through the mud to interview them, like multiple reporters at a time. And they were like, oh crap, it's another reporter here today. Don't they know we have work to do? But they sort of had to deal with them because the PR was part of, no one wanted women in their war zone. Mm -hmm. And so, but the PR made it very hard for people to kick them out. And by people, I mean the British army. But anyway, so... But they were they were really a media sensation, and to the point where when the the Red Cross wound up taking them over midway through their stay, their Red Cross their Red Cross handler joked that this was great PR for the Red Cross because everyone knew the Smith unit. And this really resonated for me with now because I keep thinking, and this is you know as a mother of young children, I have been obsessed with what working women have been experiencing. Mm-hmm. during the pandemic. The fact that we have all been completely crushed by the conflicting demands of work and childcare, and there is no end in sight. There's no solution. You know, it was okay when we were sort of pulling up our socks and, you know, digging in and we were going to do this for a couple of months. And then mm-hmm. it wasn't just a couple of months and the adrenaline went away and was replaced by anger, but mostly we we're too tired to be angry. And there have been, I read every article that comes out about how the parents are not okay, working moms are leaving the workforce in droves, we just can't take this anymore. And we've had this incredible spate of articles about this, although you know, no solutions, but it makes you, you feel like you're not alone on the, the island, your plight mm-hmm. is being recognized. But I get a weird shivery feeling when I think about the Smithies and their media blitz and how now no one knows about them. Yeah. And, you know, I just had a similar experience with the book I'm working on now, which is set during, it's sort of a prequel to the Smith book. It's set during the Spanish, partially during the Spanish-American War. And one of the real life stories I'm incorporating into it is the story of this woman who was known as the Angel of the Seneca, who was a journalist who went, who joined up with Clara Barden's Red Cross because she couldn't get anyone to let her go to the war zone to report any other way. And Clara mm-hmm. Barden was like, sure, come with us. Just, you know, we'll give you some rundown on nursing. You know, because if you're with us, you kind of have to do some nursing too. But yeah, write some nice articles about us. And anyway, so but this woman wound up um, on a medical ship that was insufficiently provisioned and kept everyone on that ship alive. 
And there was, again, a ton of information on her. She was called the angel of the Seneca. She went and testified to the present about the mistakes that had been made and the the huge disaster of medical care and Mm -hmm. army arrangements during the Spanish American War. She was a big deal. And now you cannot find anything on her. I only know about her because a librarian I know dug up this story for me from period papers. And again, thinking about us and the women of the pandemic, the mothers of the pandemic. And I just know that when the story of the pandemic is told years from now, we're gonna be forgotten. Yeah. And that it, sorry, that came out so grim, but I do sort of feel like, I guess the bottom line, the message I am drawing from this is that the past tends to be reshaped. And when we're recounting the past, Mm-hmm. It tends to be reshaped in ways that would be really almost unrecognizable, uh, unrecognizable mm-hmm. to those who are living in it in the present. That a lot of people's yeah. lived realities are written out. And when I see, say people, I mean largely women, that mm-hmm. we yes. tend to get written out of the story in various ways. And I suspect that's going to happen here too. My mom and I were just having a very similar conversation about that yesterday, about how the punishment that women get, that that loud women or women that are out there, because uh, you were discussing specifically Ida B. Wells, and now that she's getting more recognition for the work that she did, more people are becoming aware of her story, but the fact that she was punished by having her story erased because she was so, you know, quote unquote, mouthy or bold and or bold enough to do whatever she needed to do to get what her um, thoughts were out. And like, that's what happens to women is that we're always punished for that by having our history erased. Yes. And I do think, I think history tends to be cyclical and that for every period where you have women getting out there, speaking out, doing Mm -hmm. things and, you know, winning acceptance, you then get a reaction period in which women's roles are deliberately constrained and the past history is whitewashed out. And so, I mean, because, you know, in my years of writing about female spies during the Napoleonic Wars, one of the things I got from people the most was, but women of that era would never do X, Y, Z. And I found, (laughs) you know, even as I'm writing now these days, more 19, you know, more um, early 20th century, topics, I get a lot of women would never have done X, Y, Z in the war zone. I was actually just doing a talk to a lovely bunch of Seven Sisters alums last night. And I was asked, you know, did the parents of these Smith grads let them go to the war zone? And that really struck me because I think, you know, these were women in their late through the, well, they ran the gamut from the class of 1914 to the class of 1888. So these were women who reached from their mid twenties to their fifties. And sort of yep. the mean was somewhere in their late twenties, early thirties. There were a bunch of 30th birthday parties in the song. These were independent women and mm-hmm. they were women with a college education, many of whom had worked in either social work or as teachers at some point, they did not have to ask their parents, but I completely understood her question because our image of the long skirted women of the past was that they always were answerable to someone. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, just as the Victorians blotted out the freedoms that were enjoyed by the women of the late 18th century. The 1950s here blotted out the incredible freedoms that women experienced in the earlier part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I was a little struck by the fact that I had mentioned the unit's agriculturalist, that she worked at the Department of Agriculture. This was a woman who worked at the Department of Agriculture, and this was not thought strange. And in... the, the Spanish-American War book I'm working on right now, you have a 
female doctor who is help who gets taken on to help supervise the recruiting and training of nurses. This mm-hmm. sort of stuff happened. Women did these things, um, but that did not fit with the sort of 50s image of women being at home raising kids. And so we, we lost that whole part of our history. Mm-hmm. And I suspect, you know, as we go through cycles, we'll sort of keep women go out, they do things. And then the history gets erased again. I hope at some point we can break the cycle. <laughs> well, speaking of reading, um, when you're not writing, Lauren, what are you reading, watching and listening to lately that you want to recommend to us? I think like so many people, the pandemic has really changed my reading habits. Mm-hmm. I found for the first few months of the pandemic, all I could read was either mid-century mystery novels by either, you know, people like, there's this woman named Patricia Wentworth, who's sort of um, like a cut rate Agatha Christie. Her heroine is Miss Silver, who's this knitting spinster, who's a private inquiry agent and solves everything. You know, Miss <laughs> Silver will find out who did it. And it was so terribly reassuring. They're like 50 Miss Silver books. So I, re- I read through oh, all of the Miss Silvers because you knew that Miss Silver would always solve the problem and set the world to rights again. Yeah. And in a world of chaos, it was very reassuring to have tea at the vicarage and know that that guy was murdered because of the dispute with the will, but that Miss mm-hmm. Silver would make sure that the guilty parties were punished and the happy couple because there's always like a happy junior couple in the book who winds up together at the end so Mm -hmm. I love those and I just you know I would get sent arcs arcs of books that I otherwise would have been overjoyed to read and I would open them not be able to focus and go back to Miss Silver and that was really and the other person I was reading was Mary Roberts Reinhardt who's known as the American Agatha Christie who Mm -hmm. wrote all also again mystery novels in the earlier part of the 20th century, it was the same thing, except it was a comparable American world. Yeah. Um, I have branched out well now. I can also read, I've been reading a lot of chiclet, especially British chiclet. Oh, There's this one so British fun. author, Trisha Ashley, who um, is not very well known over here, but her books are my ultimate comfort reads because there are always these snarky first person heroines. Mm-hmm. And it's usually in a small village. Often there's a decaying manor house that needs help yeah. and quirky side characters. And I find them so really reassuring. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of newer books, one of the few new, so there are two newer books I've been able to read. One was um, the Midnight Library by Matthew Haig. Yeah. And the only, it's funny, the only reason I read this was I was reading it for a book club. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to put down Miss Silver and read this other book. <laughs> and then I read it in one night and it was amazing because it's about this woman who is you know, suffering from really deep depression and feels like her life isn't worth living anymore. And she winds up in the midnight library where she gets to explore all the other lives she might have had. And yeah. it's, I mean, I think this resonates with all of us because we've all had those moments where we're like, well, if only I had done X, Y, Z 10 years ago, then my life would be different. And she gets to go through, what if she had done all those other things and had those other lives and realizes that all of those lives have their own issues and problems. Yeah. And that maybe the life she has is worth something after all. So that book, I just, I loved it. It was so different from anything else I've read. And the other really different from anything else I read that I really bizarrely loved book is a book called Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton. Um, A friend of mine described this to me as Jane Austen or Georgette Hare, but with dragons. I was like, that's crazy. And I read it's George, it's Georgette Hare or Jane Austen, but with dragons in this alternate universe where all the characters are dragons, but it's otherwise this very Jane austen world of manners where so families are disputing over inheritance. And you know, if a young lady dragon scales turn from gold to pink inappropriately, she's ruined. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing world building and it reads just like 
hair or all skin, but with these dragon conventions instead. And so I highly recommend it to anyone who likes traditional regencies. It is, it's such a kick. That sounds so cute. I love it. Yeah, both of those sound amazing. I had not heard of Tooth and Claw. I'm going to like check that out like ASAP. Um, so one thing that Gwen and I talk a lot about on the podcast is what's bringing us joy or bringing us comfort. So aside from your Nespresso machine, <laughs> something that's been bringing you joy lately. Oh goodness. What's been bringing me joy, reconnecting with a lot of old friends. And I mean, I think it's funny that as we can't see each other, the mm-hmm. pandemic has in some ways brought us closer that I have a group of college friends who I love, but you know, we, we all have small children and you know, we live in different places except for a couple of us. And so everyone's, and we're all you know working mothers. And so we've all sort of fallen out of touch over the years, but somehow we've wound up now having a text chain during the pandemic and we're constantly all texting each other on the text chain and it's like now we have each other again and no time has passed and they're not the only group with whom I've had that I found that I think we're all so eager for connection and it's mm-hmm. really helped us refine each other and that knowing that I have these friends and you can pick up with them again like that and that they're there for you that brings such joy um can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now Lauren So right now I'm working on a sort of prequel to the Smith book, because while I was writing about Band of Sisters, I became really fascinated by the director of the Smith College Relief Unit, who was a, in real life, she was a um, a groundbreaking archaeologist who graduated from Smith in the 1890s when women were not allowed to excavate because it was considered unladylike. And she was like, yeah, no, no, I'm digging stuff up. This is what I'm here to Mm -hmm. do. Um, she was at the school, American School of Classical Studies in Athens, and they, they politely suggested to her she become a classical librarian instead. She's like, no, 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 I'm going to dig, I'm going to dig. But while she was in Greece, she got caught up in the Greco-Turkish War, took a Red Cross training course, failed it, but still managed to pull connections because she was had wound up being friends with various members of Greece's elite, pulled connections and got herself sent to the front where she was decorated for bravery by the queen of Greece. And if that isn't incredible enough, so what really caught my attention though was, so a year later, she winds up doing, making all of these groundbreaking discoveries at Crete that change archeology span forever, blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. in that intervening year, for no discernible reason, she goes back to America and nurses in the Spanish-American war. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why is she finally (laughs) upping and going to Cuba? What happened? And I can't tell you what happened to the real woman, um, partly because the archives in Smith College are currently closed because of a library renovation. So I wasn't able to get my hands on her real (laughs) documents. But this is a fictionalized version of her I'm working on because as I may have mentioned, I replaced all the real people in the Smith College Relief Year with my fictional ones. Mm -hmm. I did that with their founder too. So my version of Harriet Boyd Hawes is a woman named Betsy Hayes Rutherford and I borrow extensively from you know, Harriet Boyd Hall's life. I also get to have the, my own creative mm-hmm. life there. And so while, while I was writing that character in World War I as director of the Smith unit, she started dropping these little hints about her past to me. Like, and my brain started going, I realized there was a lot more to the story and that there had been a terrible, terrible tragedy in Greece that mm-hmm. drove her to the Spanish American war. And so that's the book I'm writing right now of this young Smith grad who is full of, you know, passion and ready to go out and sort of, you know, teach the boys that women can do archaeology. And then this catastrophic thing happens in her life. And she winds up having to refine herself and find mm-hmm. her purpose in life in the jungles of Cuba. 
So that, that's what I'm working on. I'm also working on a bo another book with my two good friends, Beatrice Williams and Karen White. This is going to be our fourth co-written book. It's going to come out in autumn of 2022. And this one's set in Newport, Rhode Island in the Gilded Age, the 1950s, and present day when a Gilded Age mansion is being subjected to a mansion makeover reality show. Oh my gosh, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> We're having way too much fun with it. Oh, that sounds so fun. <laughs> that does sound amazingly fun. Um, before we wrap up, where can readers connect with you online? Um, you can find me on my website at www.laurenwillig.com. Um, I also spend way too much time hanging out on my Facebook author page, which is Facebook slash Lauren Willig. And if you would like to see pictures of all the baked goods my kids make me make for them and also random historical stuff and book stuff, you can come find me on Instagram at, at Lauren Willig. I am technically also on Twitter, but I've never entirely figured out how to use it. <laughs> I'll retweet something or try to answer something, but I'm never sure whether my answer has gone to the right place. So you should probably not look for me there because although okay. I am nominally there, I'm not really, but I spend way too much time messing around on my website, Facebook, and Instagram. Great. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. This was a wonderful interview. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Danielle, you know what time it is? What it's time goal is it? time. <laughs> it's, it's time for us to check in on our goals um, and see how we've done from our last one. I uh, am very curious to know how your goals are going, but I will let you go after me. Okay. <laughs> so you need a little bit of time to <laughs> tell me about your goals. Um, you. So yeah, so last, last episode, I think I had mentioned that I was trying to eat less sugar after 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, I think the only time I was successful at doing that was when I actually fell asleep before 9 p.m. <laughs> had a really stressful week last week. Yeah, it was. It was rough. You're right. Thank you, Danielle. I was finding comfort in all kinds of treats, yeah. <laughs> including, um, they, I think it was history channel, um, had sent us the press, a, uh, a little box of cookies that had Tim Allen and the Richard Kern, who played mm -hmm. Al, the neighbor, the, you know, so mm -hmm. they're fake, they look like their faces. And so I was eating those as comfort. They were not very good, but mm -hmm. desperate times, desperate measures. <laughs> so I will, um, I think I might be putting eating after eating less sugar after 9 PM on the back burner for a little while. Maybe I'll come back to it. Okay. Um, but for right now, I just love my sugar and I'm going to keep eating it. What is your new goal for this time? So this time I'm going to, I think, getting into stretching daily. I've been doing it just for like a couple of minutes, even just in bed to mm -hmm. warm my body up and like to not feel so caved in. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm going to keep trying to do that. I've done it now for a whole week and it's been really pretty good. Do you like a, do you like a foam roller or just, just body stretches? So I'll just, so usually just body stretches, but I do have a foam roller and I love my, I'm, I'm a masochist. I love my foam roller. Like I love to like sit on the little mat and just roll yeah. out my thighs. Like it's, it's my favorite, but uh, I'm a monster. I understand. No, that sounds great. So what about you? How are your goals going? Yeah. So my goal last from last time was to drink more water, but also drink less coffee. And I don't know if I've been drinking less coffee, but I have <laughs> been drinking more water. I have been 
making sure I have, I have like multiple water bottles that I, that are just in various spots in the house where I know I like, I have a water bottle for the desk. I have mm-hmm. a water bottle for like the living room or the family room where we so watch TV. Smart. I have, a, I have a water bottle for the kitchen, you know, the dining room. So, I mean, the thing with that is like, then you have to like, remember to collect them and make sure you're cleaning them. So it yeah. is like probably adding to my, my, <laughs> like my dishes, you know, and things you have to do, but it just having it there makes me reach for that. I have been, I will say I'm thinking about it. I have been successful in stopping drinking coffee by like, I think I made myself, I'm making myself stop by three o'clock. That's good. So then hopefully I'm not up all night or just jittery or whatever. So that has been, that has been helpful. And then I have, and then my, my secondary goal was to continue working on watercolor painting. And I have that and I've been painting and I think Aww. I'm going to keep doing this. It's been fun. I've just, I've found like a couple of YouTube channels that I like with tutorials and, and yeah, it is, it's like work, it's creative and, and writing is also creative, but it's, I think working a different part of my creative brain, which has been yeah. really fun. Have you seen Northwest's uh, Bob Ross inspired painting that a yeah. seven year, that she as a seven-year-old made herself? I mean, it's really really impressive. <laughs> well, it's really impressive. As long as it's really her. If I know it's real, it's impressive. About, if it is, no, I mean, I have a very artistic kid of a similar age and she, some, sometimes, you know, you're like, what is that? But then also other times you're like, whoa, you know? So, <laughs> I mean, I think she, if she's been like practicing, I'm sure they've had like lessons last tutors to come in and tell her what to do good for yeah good for go for it oh she's, gosh, yeah, she'll so be like my painting inspiration maybe <laughs> <laughs> do you have a new goal this week I do my new goal you know I have these water bottles and I have all of this like watercolor paper just everywhere I also I'm I'm working on revisions on my book so I've print I I need when I revise I have to print things out um, I have to do it by hand just so I can get like a different set of eyes on it, even though they're the same on my same eyes. But mm-hmm. you know, so my desk is out of control. It <laughs> needs to be cleaned. So I have to figure out like a new organization system. Maybe I need to order some, like those three tiered, like slotted Ooh, things. Yeah. Something, something's got to change. I'm like looking at my desk right now, <laughs> it's overwhelming. So, Do you follow organizers on Instagram? No, though they stress me out because everything looks so nice. And I think mm-hmm. no matter how much I declutter or try to change, it just comes back. I yeah. like, I've got to figure it out on myself. You know, the clutter, the mess I, in, I bet, I, I bet in a few months, this will be my, my goal again. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's an ongoing one because I think it is. Maybe it has to be on there every week. I just got to clean your desk every week. And since it's in our outline, I'll do it. I love it. So I hope I catch a little bit of that goal because I really need to clean my desk and put my new monitor up that I've been putting (laughs) off for two months. I I like just thought of a segue because I think cleaning my desk would bring me comfort. Oh, girl, it would. Let's talk about what is making us happy this week. What is bringing us comfort and joy? So would you like to go first? Sure. Um, I am going to be braggy, but I, the one thing that brought me the most amount of comfort this week is the fact that my mom finally got her first vaccine for the COVID shot. And I am so happy. So I, yeah, that brought me a lot of comfort because like, it's just, you know, as everybody knows, everyone's going through it. It's just, this has been a, this has been a hard year and, and it's nice to see the people 
that you love finally getting it and getting a chance. And hopefully by the time um, we have our next recording, more people will have had a chance to do it. So I hope so. I love that so much. I know your mom very well. It brings me comfort too, knowing yeah. that she is on on the road to being fully vaccinated. That's yes, she, she's so funny. She's like, when I'm fully vaccinated, I'm getting a pedicure. So <laughs> that is put that off for a year. So she's very excited. Yeah. What about you? So this week, okay, I talked about stopping drinking coffee at like three mm-hmm. o'clock in the afternoon, two thirty, three o'clock. But I still dr- need some. I, I mean, I drink water, but I don't love water. You know, it's boring. It's boring. Um, so I've been drinking quite a bit of tea in like the afternoons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I'm pretty basic. I love just like a good English breakfast tea, with a, like a dollop of honey. And my go-to brand is Twinings, you know, classic. It's been around Always. for literally hundreds of years. Yep. But then my other, the new one, I really, it's an herbal tea. A new tea I love is from Trader Joe's and it's their ginger turmeric tea. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. It's like extra gingery. It's oh, yeah. I love gin- like ginger. Just love ginger's ginger. my favorite too. And yeah, so it's really good if you are near Trader Joe's and you can safely go get some. Go get some. But yeah, that is. I think that is what's bringing me comfort this week. Those are so good. I love. I'm drinking the Twinings English breakfast right now, but I also really love the Irish breakfast. That's one of my mm-hmm. favorites of theirs too. It's like a little sweeter. No, the Darjeeling's a little sweeter, but okay. it's like a little bit blacker, I guess, just a little darker. Mm, so love good. it. Mm. I'm gonna try that ginger tea though too, because I've been trying to find a ginger turmeric. I tried the Yogi brand one, and it was mm-hmm. disgusting. Yeah, it's hard, and I think what works for this one is how much ginger is in it. Yeah, yeah, that's what you need. I love it, gingery. It's my fave. Cool. Yeah. And it's very good. It's anti-inflammatory. <laughs> so if you need that. Always helpful. Well, yeah. that is all for us this week. Uh, Danielle, how can uh, people stay in touch with you right this week? Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter. I'm at DJ underscore dresser. Um, and I'm also on Instagram and it's the, and it's the same at DJ underscore dresser, D-R-E-S-S-E-R, like the furniture. <laughs> um, and you can find me at Real Vixen, R-E-E-L-V-I-X-E-N on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you want. And then always find us on Facebook, I guess, if you need to, please rate and review us and subscribe. We'd love to hear your reviews. We'd also love to hear from you. So you can always reach out to us. All right. Bye everyone. Bye.